Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing really good. Good. It's been a good week. Yeah. We're on our last week of volleyball, and you know when the end of something is near and you just want to die because it's so close you can taste it? That's where I'm at. I'm just burnout and have to ride on a bus with fifth and sixth graders on Saturday yeah, that I wasn't well, planning been, on. <laughs> you've been doing a lot of volleyball this week, so I bet you are exhausted by by now. Yeah, and just, you know, my brain doesn't do well doing things. You know I don't want to leave my house more than one time a month, and so this is just <laughs> really stretching me out of my comfort zone. But it's been good. But it, all good things have to come to an end, right? Except for this show. We'll be on forever. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh. Let's get into the episode this week. All right. So today we're talking about the shocking and tragic death of a 21-year-old college student at Austin Community College. And before we get into the story, we're going to learn a little about Austin, a little more, I should say, because we had a case from Austin already. But Melissa has come up with a new Google This City for Austin. I would like to say this is a lot of pressure to take on a city twice. Yeah. But we've t- <laughs> we've talked about Austin before, like Mandy was saying. So I had to dig deep, really deep to find these facts. I actually had to search fun facts about Austin and travel all the way to the second page of Google like a real animal. So <laughs> let's get right into it. Austin is the capital of Texas and has around 960,000 residents as of the 2018 census. But you already knew this because you all remember all the facts from all the Google the cities, of course. Right, Mandy? I mean, I definitely do. <laughs> I considered quizzing you on the ones I had from last time. I was like, no, 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 that's that's really wrong. I don't even remember these facts. I can't do that to you. <laughs> so here are some new facts that you might not know unless you've traveled to the second page of Google. So Austin has the only nude beach in all of Texas. It's actually called Hippie Hollow, which sounds about right. And this nude beach is located at Lake Travis in Austin, and it's where you can go to bear it all or some of it or honestly I don't really know because I own sleep cardigans. (laughs) Austin actually has a museum that is dedicated to junk. The Cathedral of Junk is located in the south side of Austin in the backyard of a small home. You can find it all there Mandy from clocks to bikes to TVs and the best part is the junk is always changing. So in summary, if you want to see an episode of Hoarders live and in person, but you want to skip seeing all the dead cats in the freezer, check out the Cathedral of Junk. (laughs) I was feeling a little risky with that joke. There were no cats harmed in the making of that terrible, terrible joke. (laughs) So several big celebrities call Austin home. Actress Sandra Bullock once owned a restaurant in Austin called Best Bistro, but it closed up shop in 2015. But don't despair. She now has a restaurant slash bakery slash deli slash flower shop called Walton's Fancy and Staple. But I really feel like there is a missed opportunity here for Sandra. Maybe she could add on a funeral parlor and you'd really have a one-stop shop. You could pick up flowers, (laughs) grab a scone, bury Uncle Herbert, all at one place. (laughs) (laughs) Lastly, actor and Lincoln Town Car enthusiast Matthew McConaughey and his family also call Austin home. And you know what that means, Mandy. All right, all right, all right. This has gone on long enough. Back to you, Mandy. (laughs) Jennifer Ray Cave was born in Bishop, Texas on March 12, 1984. Her mother, Sharon, had a daughter named Vanessa with her first husband, who was five years old by the time that Jennifer was born. And Jennifer was actually the first of three children that was born to Sharon and her second husband, Charlie. The children were all raised with a small town mentality and really a love and appreciation for farm life. And they even participated in 4-H programs and raised pigs in a shed behind the family home, which is literally my dream life. I want to do that right now. I am surprised and would not be shocked, though, if you did not currently have a pig running around your feet while we were recording (laughs) a secret piglet you haven't told me about. You know, that's like my next... That's the oh, next I animal I want. I That's the next pet I want. I want a pig. Really bad. You're not George Clooney. Yeah. Don't do this to me. <laughs> In 1992, Jennifer and her 220-pound Poland hog even won reserve grand champion at a local livestock show. Jennifer was quite an outdoorsy type and a tomboy who really connected with her father and brother, while Jennifer's two sisters were more like their mom. 
Jennifer and her siblings all had many talents and were involved in a number of extracurricular activities from softball and soccer to spelling bees and sewing contests. This was a very busy family. They always had something going on. Yeah. Jennifer in particular enjoyed volleyball, basketball, tennis, and cheerleading, which she did from elementary school age all the way onward through high school. The family of six spent a lot of time together, spending summers at the beach in Corpus Christi and visiting their grandparents often. The family was very close-knit and nurturing, but by the time Jennifer reached school age, she was a little bit self-conscious about her own appearance. Although her mother Sharon described her as a Gerber baby with the most beautiful blue eyes, Jennifer kind of started nitpicking little things about herself that she just didn't like. She didn't like her freckles, and she didn't like the fact that she had to wear glasses, and later on she would also get braces, and it sounded to me like she just went through a lot of that kind of that awkward phase everyone goes through, and she struggled with it quite a bit. She mostly kept to herself throughout school, although she did have a small circle of close friends that she actually shared with one of her younger sisters. They had a lot of the same friends and kind of hung out in the same circle. Jennifer was really not the type to get involved in other people's drama, and she was always kind and thoughtful of everyone that she knew, which were traits that she herself attributed to her mom. Although Jennifer's family and home life seemed really idyllic, there were some family secrets that would eventually tear them apart. Jennifer's father, Charlie, had a bit of a drinking problem, and although he was a wonderful and loving man when he was sober, he would become emotionally abusive and angry when he would drink. On the mornings following his alcohol-induced rampages, he would wake up and apologize to Sharon and the kids and just kind of go on as if nothing had ever happened. Sharon tried to make it work and even went to counseling with Charlie in an attempt to hold their family together, but in the end, the couple did get divorced. Although Jennifer and her siblings moved with their mom to a new house in town, Jennifer made a point to keep an open relationship with her dad, and she just really wasn't the type of person to hold a grudge or to give up on people that she loved. So, you know, she understood what was happening with her parents and with her family, and she really still tried to make sure that she had a relationship with her dad. By junior high, Jennifer was well-known around town as being an excellent babysitter, and although she was shy, she didn't seem to have a problem making new friends. But those friends weren't always from the best of situations. In fact, Sharon referred to some of them as Jennifer's strays. She had a knack for befriending other kids who felt that they didn't fit in or maybe had troubled home lives, which is something that she really continued on into high school. Around her freshman year, Jennifer began to grow into what she had always considered as her awkward looks. Her mother, Sharon, said that Jennifer never really knew just how beautiful she was, but that her confidence was boosted when she began wearing contact lenses and she was really excelling on the cheerleading squad. As Jennifer and her siblings got older, Sharon started taking on more responsibility outside the family home when she got a job at a newspaper about an hour away. With Sharon spending more time away from the house and the older sister being away at college, Jennifer became the next in line to pick up some of the responsibilities at the house, including taking care of her younger siblings. This was not a role that Jennifer enjoyed, and in fact, she felt herself really longing for that time that her mom had been home with her before as they were growing up. Then in 1999, even more of Sharon's time was compromised when she began dating again. She had met a man named Jim Sedwick at a CPA at a Corpus Christi accounting firm. Originally, she actually had tried to set him up on a date with a friend of hers, and that didn't work out, but a short time later, Sharon and Jim began seeing each other. Sharon's children really grew to love Jim, and he quickly developed a close relationship with Jennifer, who at this time in their relationship was actually in high school. It wasn't long before Sharon and Jim decided to move in together, but of course that would mean that Jennifer and her siblings were all moving to Corpus Christi, which is something that the very shy Jennifer was not really excited about. She was a small town girl, and she was a bit nervous about transitioning to such a large school in a large city. Jennifer's shyness went with her into her new high school, but by the 10th grade, she had transformed from an awkward adolescent into a very good-looking young lady. She began getting attention from the boys, which she really loved, and before long, Jennifer found a place in the party scene among her peers. At this time, she began using alcohol and cocaine. Half the time, Jennifer was the same shy and pleasant girl she had always been, and the other half of the time, she was arguing with her mom and earning herself a reputation of being the party chick around the school. 
But even through all of Jennifer's socialite ways, she was an extremely bright student who had no problem performing well in school, and she even graduated high school in the top 15% of her class. She had a bright future on the horizon, and she was excited to start the next chapter in her life as a student at Southwest Texas State University, where she would be pursuing a degree in finance. But Jennifer's first year of college kind of went how other college freshmen's first year goes, and she had really no direction or goals, and she was kind of there. And the partying continued, as did the contention between she and her mom. I can tell you firsthand, my first year of college was a joke. I went yes. to a community college. I took meteorology. Do you think I was interested in meteorology? <laughs> we had a meteorologist that taught it, and I thought it'd be really cool to be in, uh, what was her name? Nancy something's class. I hated it. You had to know too much science. It was terrible. And so I just didn't go. I didn't go to any of my classes. It was terrible. Me. Yeah. I didn't even yeah, do it. <laughs> I know. That was how mine was too. My first year I went to a community college and it was just, like you said, it was a complete joke. I think I even took like a theater class or something. Never had any interest in theater mm-hmm. or anything like up to that point. But for some reason I got to my first year of college and I was like, you know what? I am going to start getting into theater. And um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I dropped that class like before the withdrawal date or whatever. But yeah, it was just, it was the same thing for me. I like, I didn't have any direction. I just was there because I thought I had to be and yeah. didn't even really know what I was doing there. So. I know. Well, that that's so funny. I felt the same way, but then I always drop my classes after the drop date where you would get your money back. <laughs> so I'd be like, well, I just got to hold out hope. My mom would be like, when are you in class? I'm like, um, 10, 15-ish, I think. I don't know. <laughs> it was not a great time for me. So I do totally get this time where you're just, especially newly out of high school, and now you have all this freedom and you're like, well, I don't really want to do this. And if you don't have a real plan, it's easy to kind of just get caught up in, in having this freedom. Yeah, for sure. So her partying continued and the contention with she and her mom actually continued as well. At one point in the fall of her freshman year, Jennifer found herself in trouble when she was caught in a boy's dorm room smoking pot. She was arrested and taken to jail and subsequently kicked out of the college. Jennifer moved back home for the summer where she met a boy named Mark and their summer romance blossomed into love. It was really a very exciting time in her life, but Jennifer wanted to try college again, this time at Austin Community College. She rented a small apartment just around the corner from the campus, and she was excited about her new journey, as were her parents. No one could have known the nightmare that would soon unfold for this beautiful young woman who was just starting her life and trying to find her way. And we will get back into this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Have you ever sat in a meeting that could have really been an email and thought to yourself, self, this is terrible, and the only thing that could make it worse would be wearing uncomfortable pants, and then you look down and realize you are wearing restrictive and uncomfortable dress pants? You're not alone, and while Betabrand can't get you out of that meeting, they can get you into a comfortable pair of pants. I am tall, really tall, and this fact has been pointed out to me several times in my life. And being tall means I have a hard time finding dress pants that are long enough for me to wear, let alone dress pants that are actually comfortable to wear. When I first heard about Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants, I really loved the idea of a dress pant that felt like yoga pants, but I honestly assumed that they would not be long enough for me. Luckily, I was wrong. Beta Brand has talls for me and petites for Mandy and everything in between. I ordered the straight leg classic dress pant yoga pants in black, and I love that not only are my Beta Brand stylish, they're also super comfy, perfectly stretchy, and they stay wrinkle-free. You've got to try a pair of these pants from Beta Brand. Trust me, you'll love them. And you can get 20% off at betabrand.com slash moms. Don't wait. See for yourself why millions of women agree these are the most comfortable dress pants ever. Go to betabrand.com slash moms for 20% off. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash moms. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it into your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. 
Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we left off with Jennifer Cave starting college for the second time at Austin Community College. And things were really looking up for Jennifer at this time in her life. She finally had a plan, and she had even recently accepted a job at a local law firm. But as is commonly seen in little college towns, there was an active nightlife as well as a very active drug scene. And Jennifer was already all too familiar with this lifestyle, having already spent that one year at another college and partaking in drugs and alcohol, at least to some degree. But as it goes, sometimes hanging in those circles can lead to encounters with some less than savory people. And that is how Jennifer ended up meeting one of her new friends named Colton Petoniak. As we mentioned before, Jennifer had this habit of picking up friends that she had to put a lot of time and energy into because they had one problem or another. And she was the type of just kind and caring person who felt that it was her responsibility to really help them. And I totally related to this because this was me when I was growing up, really, really in middle school. Um, my mom was always saying that to me, like, where are you making these friends? Like, like how? Like, <laughs> I believe it. I 100% believe it. Yeah. And so I just, I did though. I wanted to just be their friend and like help, you know, I wanted their life to be okay. But yeah, my mom was always, always wondering like where I picked up some of these people. <laughs> but it's a great quality because it comes from a really good place of wanting to, you know, be a good person in their lives, having, you know, having compassion for other people and stuff like that. I am too obsessed with like, breaking rules and things going wrong. And if they're breaking rules, then I'm breaking rules and the D.A.R.E. program and all of that. And so it's it it worked opposite for me. Like, I love that you're able to do that. I would always just be scared and be like, somebody should be friends with them. And luckily, you would come along and befriend them. Yeah. I mean, it is really like a fine line, though, because, yeah. you know, you you can't let yourself kind of be dragged down, you know, if you're right. going to if you're going to be that person who, you know, kind of takes people who need you under, you know, take people under your wing when they need you, that's fine if you can make sure you separate and kind of keep your own life on track, you know, at the same time. So it seems like that is kind of where Jennifer struggled a little bit in some of her relationships and definitely in this friendship that she now has with this guy, Colton. So he was, as I said, no exception to this rule. He was a finance major at the University of Texas, where he was attending on a scholarship that he had earned with his good grades in high school. And he was originally from a little town in Arkansas called Bryant. Colton was really always destined for greatness. According to his mother, he was talking before he could walk and he was reading by the age of three. Oh, wow. He was raised in a religious family and attended Catholic school, where he earned himself a spot on the A honor roll every year. But with his extreme intelligence came a little bit of arrogance. He was really great at everything that he did, but he was very aware of it. While he was very intelligent and goal-driven, he had a dark side that included a quick temper, and he also had a drug habit. He began experimenting with drugs during his junior year of high school, which was very similar to the time frame that Jennifer had started experimenting with drugs. Colton quickly gained this reputation for fighting, and he would get into brawls with other boys on a regular basis, although he was rarely the winner in these fights. But still, he kept doing this behavior because he wanted to be popular and well-liked, and so that was really important to him. He felt that that was going to earn him this popularity that he was so desperate for. Oh, I would have never been popular. I would not physically fight somebody to save my life. I no, that no, terrifies no. me. I I had one incident in high school where a girl was like saying she wanted to beat me up and I was straight up terrified. <laughs> like I did not even I went out of my way to make sure I did not see her like going to the bus or anything because I was scared. Yeah. That's, that was not my scene at all. I was not a fighter no. like that. Mm-mm. But this tactic actually seemed to kind of work for Colton. He did have many friends that described him as being a fun guy to be around, although some of his friends said that Colton loved to party and he loved to drink and use drugs, and those times is really when things would turn ugly for him. 
Colton graduated high school with a 4.0 average in 2001, and he applied and was accepted to several colleges, including the University of Pennsylvania, New York University, but ultimately he chose to go to the University of Texas, which his family was thrilled about because that was much closer to their home in Arkansas. So Colton really transitioned to college life pretty quickly and pretty easily. He joined a fraternity and he was well known, but he was well known among his frat brothers for some negative things. So he was always high and he kind of became somewhat of an outsider in this frat house. He really sailed through his first two years at UT, but in the summer of 2003, he started to slip a little and his dedication to his education really seemed to be wavering. His friends wondered if his drug use was beginning to take its toll and interfere with his academic performance. By the end of that same year, Colton was selling drugs and using them on a daily basis, and he was eventually caught driving while intoxicated, and he was suspended from the University of Texas. So these events are what led to his eventual enrollment at Austin Community College, where Jennifer Cave had already been attending classes. And within just a few months, these two young adults would cross paths and set into motion a series of events that would change the lives of two families forever. By the time Colton started school at the community college, Jennifer had already been there for a year and really had settled in and she had found her groove. She had a boyfriend who she adored and her own place where she lived with her cat. Her family suspected that she was still using drugs at college, but Jennifer would really brush off any inquiries about it and insist that she was really just doing fine. She maintained regular contact with her family, but she was mostly interested in doing her own thing, which makes sense. You're in college, you're away, you have this freedom, you know, you you have this separate life now. Beyond that, she lost some of her passion for school and seemed to want to take jobs and really work more than she wanted to go to class. I also understand that. A hundred percent. I was about to say the same thing. I Well, because then you're making a little bit more money you know, than you made in high school. So you're like, oh, I could easily live off of this as a single person that is 18 years old and has no real responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) And you find out really quick, like if I look back at what I was making then, I'm like, oh my gosh, Melissa, why would you have not stayed in school? What was wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) So she also liked to go to parties. And in the spring of 2004, that's actually where she and Colton first met. Before long, it became obvious to friends of Colton's that he was really into Jennifer, although they weren't really a couple. They began to spend a lot of time together at Colton's apartment, doing drugs and just hanging out, but friends of Jennifer eventually started to notice that Colton was really possessive when it came to her. Meanwhile, the heavy drug use and drug dealing continued, and so did Colton's violent behavior. Eventually, his lifestyle choices led to him being arrested in his apartment after police discovered a multitude of drugs, including pot, cocaine, and prescription pills. Several months after his arrest, he moved into an apartment where Jennifer ended up staying with him for several weeks, but she later told a friend that she really didn't feel safe there. She actually moved out after a terrifying incident in which Colton obsessively and repeatedly told her that he loved her and that he wanted to be with her while she was trying to deny his advances by saying, you know, she doesn't love him and that she's actually scared of him. That same night, Colton pulled a knife on her, and thankfully Colton's friend was there and was able to get the situation under control, but... Of course, Jennifer was really scared, really frightened, and she was actually scared enough to move out. They ended up reconciling, and Colton entered into a drug and alcohol treatment center of his own accord. And although he did complete the program, he began using drugs and alcohol again with the same frequency as before. At this time, Jennifer had moved on and was living with a new boyfriend, a single father named Scott. The two were in love, and by early 2005, Jennifer couldn't stop gushing about him to her friends. She really loved having Scott and his daughter in her life. Scott actually turned out to be really good for Jennifer, and she backed off her drug use quite a bit during this time. Scott was really well aware of Colton and the dynamic between he and Jennifer, but Colton still had some kind of hold on her. He really appealed to her compassionate side, and anytime he would call on her, she would be there for him. While Jennifer was actively trying to improve her life and provide herself with some stability, Colton's life was quickly spiraling. He was arrested on drug-related charges again in June of 2005, and he spent 20 days in jail. Jennifer's friends began to really plead with her to stay away from Colton and said that he was really bad news and that nothing good would come from a friendship with him, but Jennifer insisted that Colton was really a nice guy when he wasn't drunk or high. The weeks passed, and Jennifer was starting to struggle with balancing her role at home with Scott and his daughter. 
She loved them both, but the idea of being tied down as a wife and mother was losing its appeal, and they eventually broke up, which really devastated Scott. In August of 2005, she moved in with a friend and soon took a job at a law firm, although she remained entangled in Colton's life as well. But on August 17, 2005, the complicated relationship between the two of them would take a deadly turn. On that day, Colton had invited Jennifer out to dinner to celebrate her new job, and they also met up with a couple of friends, but shortly before midnight, Colton and Jennifer left the bar and walked off together, which the friends that they were with, they assumed that they had left to go actually buy an eight ball of cocaine, since that was precisely what Colton had been going on about wanting to do all night long. Jennifer had been chatting with a male friend throughout the evening, and between midnight and one o'clock in the morning, she sent him several messages about Colton, saying that she was still out with him, he's lost his phone, and he's very upset, and he was really just acting belligerent in a parking lot, and was like peeing on a car, and like trying to break the window of a random car, and he was just, he was in that mode, that Colton mode that he got into sometimes. And so Jennifer told her her friend Michael that she was just going to help Colton find his phone and then she was going home because she had to get up and go to work the next day. Little did anyone know that these would be the last text messages and phone calls that Jennifer would make. The next morning, Jennifer's roommate awoke at her usual time of 6.15 and she had promised Jennifer that she would wake her up in the morning so that she could make sure she made it to work at the law firm. Of course, this is still a very new job, so Jennifer is just over the moon excited to have this job. Her her parents are excited for her. Everyone is kind of like, this is great for Jennifer. She's getting her life back on track and she has this amazing job now. And so her roommate, you know, was very happy for her and said, yeah, I will, when I get up in the morning, I will make sure that you are out of bed. So she knocked on Jennifer's door and she didn't get an answer. A little while later, her roommate was in the bathroom brushing her teeth and she heard Jennifer's alarm clock start going off, but it just kept going off and kept going off and it wasn't getting silenced. So her roommate started having this terrible, terrible nagging feeling that there was something wrong. And to ease her own concerns, she decided to open Jennifer's bedroom door and take a look inside. To her surprise, Jennifer wasn't there and her room was left neat and tidy and the bed was made just as she had left it the night before. So at this point, it was clear to her roommate that Jennifer had not come home that night. So the roommate, her name is Denise, she talked herself out of worry by telling herself that Jennifer probably had just stayed at a friend's house and went straight into work from there and that there was really nothing to be concerned about. And she she went about her day. She went off to her own job and kind of tried to push it to the back of her mind. But as the morning went on, more people actually started noticing Jennifer's absence. And this is including Scott, who had sent her a nice text just about having a great day. And that message went unanswered. Jennifer also failed to show up for work at the job that she was so excited and eager to start, which set off alarm bells. And one of her new co-workers even drove to her apartment, knocked on the door, you know, tried to get her to answer, tried to get a hold of her and left a note on the front door to call them and let them know, you know, what was going on. By noon that day, several of Jennifer's friends and acquaintances were getting worried, and at around 2 p.m., someone from Jennifer's job decided to reach out to her emergency contact, which was her mother, Sharon. When Sharon learned that Jennifer hadn't shown up for work, she began trying to track her down. She began by calling Jen's roommate, Denise, who told her really what she knew, which was that Jennifer wasn't home that morning when her alarm went off. Sharon was, of course, suspicious that her daughter had started using drugs again and immediately wondered whether she was with Colton the previous night. Sharon continued to call a few more of Jennifer's other friends, including Michael, who was the male friend that Jennifer had spoken to around 1 a.m. the night before. He told Sharon that Jennifer was with Colton and that she mentioned that he was acting really weird. At this point, Sharon, of course, is becoming really worried, although her husband Jim didn't really share her concern. He felt that Jennifer had a terrible track record and that she was most likely at Colton's doing drugs, but he decided to call Colton himself and clear the whole thing up so that Sharon could relax. When Colton answered the phone, though, he sounded strung out and claimed that he hadn't seen Jennifer since midnight the previous night, which is, of course, a contradiction because Sharon's already talked to Michael, you know, Jennifer's friend, and said that at one o'clock he was still getting these text messages from Jennifer, so there's no way they would have parted ways at 12. Colton hurriedly got off the phone, insisting that he did not know where Jennifer was. Sharon and Jim really weren't buying his story, and they made plans to take the four-hour trip to Austin the next day to go look for Jennifer themselves. 
The very first stop they made when they got into town was to Colton's apartment. Of course, there's no answer when they knock on the door, but alarmingly, they did find Jennifer's car parked nearby, so they had a really strong feeling that she was inside that apartment. They dialed 911 and had officers come out to assess the situation around 8 p.m. When the police responded and took a look around the apartment, they determined that there was no probable cause to enter, and they told Sharon and Scott that there was really nothing else they could do besides report Jennifer as missing. That has to be so frustrating. You're like... Here's her car. We know she's been talking to this guy, and they really can't do anything else. They can do this report, and that's it. It is frustrating, but I mean, also, like, that's, I mean, yeah, the police kind of have, there's only so much they can really do. And if they don't see anything from the outside, you know, that looks suspicious or looks like a person is going to be in trouble or anything like that, they can't just enter people's apartments, you know? Their hands are really tied. It's like you have this family, and they're like, begging you just give them some kind of answers you know whether she's in there or she not in there but they They really can't Mm -hmm. so once officers left jim decided to take matters into his own hands and he called a locksmith to come out to the apartment and open the lock after waiting for an hour for the locksmith to show up and then waiting another 30 minutes while he tried to gain entry into the apartment the locksmith left after saying the lock was very high security and he couldn't pick it unwilling to give up jim came up with another plan to get into the apartment himself He managed to unlock a window, and he climbed inside. The apartment was dark and in disarray, but Jim wandered through each room while Sharon waited outside. In the hallway, Jim came upon a door that was closed. When he opened it, he realized it was the bathroom, and he could see the shadow of something in the tub. When he flipped on the light, he made the devastating discovery of Jennifer's body. She had been shot, and her head and both of her hands had been severed. Colton was, of course, nowhere to be found. Chaos ensued as Sharon realized that her daughter had been murdered. By this time, friends and family of Jennifer's were also on the scene, and several students in neighboring apartments were outside milling around, and everyone was just really trying to make sense of what had just been discovered. And we're going to get back into the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Man has invented many wonderful things like the wheel, bread, or the office, but one invention soars high above the rest for me, and that is the sock. I hate feet, but I love comfort, so naturally I am arguably the biggest fan of socks year-round for every occasion, including sleeping. And that's why I am ecstatic to try a pair of Bombas. Truly, ask Mandy, I have been on cloud nine since we found out that we were going to receive the most comfortable socks in the world. Speaking of clouds, wearing a pair of Bombas sounds like a walk in the clouds since they are made from super soft natural cotton and every pair is designed with arch support, a seamless toe, and a cushioned footbed that's supportive but not too thick. Bombas has an amazing variety of colors, patterns, lengths, and styles. The website is a breeze to use and I have my eye on their new merino wool socks designed to be breathable, dry, and never itchy with just the right amount of thickness. These sound perfect for the winter. And with Bombas, not only do you get a perfect pair of socks for yourself, for every pair of socks you buy, Bombas will donate a pair to someone in need. To date, Bombas has donated over 20 million pair of socks and counting. Socks are actually the number one most requested item at homeless shelters, and Bombas is doing their part to change that. The holidays will be here before we know it. Give a gift that even the biggest Grinch in your family would love to receive. Save 20% on your first purchase when you shop at bombas.com slash momsandmurder. That's bombas.com slash momsandmurder to save 20%. bombas.com slash momsandmurder. Somewhere between the 6th or 7th anniversary of turning 29, my body began to change. No, not that change, the other one. I was still eating the same junk I had always eaten, but now my body was really rejecting it. I began getting headaches, heartburn, and the bloating. Oh, the bloating. Unfortunately, my body is not the same as it was when I was a teenager, yet I've still been treating it like it is. Even though I know some of the foods I've been eating are making me feel bad, I didn't really understand why until I started working with Noom. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses, which is great for someone like me that needs to break decades of poor eating habits. I don't know about you, but when I learn why something affects me, it becomes easier to break bad habits and feel better. Noom is based in psychology and teaches you why you do the things you do and arms you with the tools to break the bad habits and replace them with better ones. They say it's based on a cognitive behavioral approach. I just say it works. While Noom isn't your babysitter, it does arm you with knowledge to make the best decisions for yourself while offering you support by way of your goal specialist and the Noom community. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. 
Sign up for your trial today at Noom, that's N-O-O-M dot com slash moms. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's Noom.com slash moms, the last weight loss program you'll need. And now back to the episode. After Jennifer's stepfather found her body, police were called back to the apartment and a nightmarish investigation began. Investigators quickly learned about Colton Petoniak and his reputation for being a well-known violent drug dealer. His car was still parked in its usual spot, and a search of the vehicle revealed what police believed was the gun that had been used to shoot Jennifer. Little did anyone know at this time that Colton was long gone. He had actually crossed the border into Mexico, but he was not by himself. Police soon learned that another female friend of Colton's named Laura Hall was also missing, and when her parents finally made contact with her, she actually told them that she was driving to Mexico with Colton because he had killed someone. So at this point, of course, Laura's parents are freaking out, and they're like, oh my gosh, what are you doing with this guy? Like, they were concerned for her safety, of course. And later on, Laura will say that she actually went with him because she feared for her safety, but we're going to get into more about Laura. So the question really becomes, who even was Laura Hall? And how did she get involved in this entire ordeal in the first place? And why would she be willing to flee to Mexico with Colton? Well, it's really a simple answer. She was actually head over heels in love with Colton. She had come into the picture at around the same time that Jennifer had met and fallen in love with Scott. A Texas native, Laura was also attending college nearby with the goal of one day becoming an attorney. She was what some would describe as eccentric and often came across as rude without really even meaning to. She didn't have a history of drug use or the same type of lifestyle that Colton was accustomed to, but she still fell in love with him after a mutual friend introduced them at a party. From there, Laura began to use drugs with Colton. She actually lost a lot of weight and began to slack off in her classes, and many of her friends said that they felt Colton really dragged her down, and being with him was just a completely terrible relationship choice for her. But it only made sense for Laura to be the one that Colton called on for help just hours after he had murdered Jennifer inside of his apartment. At 5.34 that morning, he called Laura and said that he needed to talk. Laura was actually staying at a friend's house that night, but she woke up her friend to ask for a ride to her car so that she could go to Colton's apartment. The events that happened when Laura arrived at the apartment are really up for debate in this case. According to Laura, Colton let her in, but she said that he appeared nervous about something and his behavior was so strange that she actually was concerned and she kind of begged him to tell her what was going on. She alleged that he showed her to the bathroom where Jennifer's body lay in the tub. By her account, Jennifer's body had already been dismembered, and Colton was terrified and didn't know what to do. But Laura said that he never asked her for any help, and he even told her to get out of there so that she wouldn't get caught up in this. It wasn't until later that day, when Colton realized that Jennifer's parents had gotten the police involved, that he decided he needed to make a run for it and asked Laura if she would drive him to Mexico. That afternoon, before the two of them took off, Laura stopped at a gas station and filled up her gas tank while Colton went to a local hardware store and purchased a hacksaw, masks, ammonia, Febreze, latex gloves, 55-gallon drum liners, blue shop towels, toilet paper, and a carpet cleaner. Oh, wow. Yeah. The clerk at the hardware store was suspicious and noticed the smell of alcohol on Colton's breath. So she kind of asked him, you know, what he was doing with all this stuff. What does he need a hacksaw for? And Colton responded that he was trying to cut up a frozen turkey. Can you imagine being the person that had like the foresight to ask him that and then realizing yeah. what happened later? That would be, I mean, so yeah, how do you question somebody on that? They did as much as they could, but yeah, wow. Several hours later, Colton and Laura were bound for a little border town in Mexico called Piedras Negras. While investigators worked the crime scene at Colton's apartment, he and Laura successfully crossed the border and later rented a room at the Casablanca Inn using their University of Texas student IDs for identification. Meanwhile, back in Austin, an autopsy was performed on Jennifer's remains. It was discovered that the cause of death had been a gunshot wound that entered through her right arm and went into her chest. Additionally, multiple post-mortem wounds were discovered on Jennifer's body, including 18 stab wounds to her neck, all believed to have been done after she was already dead. 
Investigators believe that the horrific violence against Jennifer's corpse was a pure act of evil, and it was done only out of amusement or anger. It became priority number one to track down these two college fugitives and bring them in for some serious questioning. In Mexico, Colton and Laura were contemplating their next move, but they also found time to really enjoy themselves a little bit as well. They befriended a man and his family at their hotel and even got invited to watch a pay-per-view UFC competition with them. Colton proceeded to get really drunk that night and said things to his new friend that were really startling. He kept insisting that he and Laura could not go back to the U.S., but they needed help selling Laura's car. He then asked the man, quote, do they extradite from Mexico? The investigation continues back in Austin, and police now have reason to believe that Laura Hall was more involved in this crime than they had initially believed. At this point, she was already guilty of helping Colton flee the country, but police also found even more incriminating evidence against her. Her DNA was on the gun that was found in Colton's car. This gun was a match to the bullets used to shoot Jennifer. Other evidence found at the crime scene included two bullet casings, a machete with blood on it in the dishwasher, a folding knife, and a pair of women's flip-flops. Laura's parents were actually very cooperative with the police, and they gave them all the tips they had, including that they believed that their daughter was in Piedras Negras at a hotel with Colton. I mean, that's all the information they would really need, you know. Now they have an idea of exactly where she is and that she's with him. So with this information, U.S. authorities alerted Mexican authorities to let them know that they were looking for suspects in a brutal murder. Five days after they had arrived in Mexico, they were picked up by a Mexican SWAT team and handed over to U.S. authorities, who placed Colton under arrest, but they actually let Laura leave on her own free will at first. But she would be brought in for questioning just three days later. At first, Laura was really resistant to helping the police or to say anything that would incriminate Colton. She was really, really uncooperative, but after nine hours of interrogation, she finally started to crack and told the police that, yes, she was in love with Colton, she was scared of what would happen, but she insisted that she had nothing at all to do with the murder. The only thing that she was admitting to was driving over the border into Mexico with Colton. But she eventually did admit to police that she did see Jennifer's body in Colton's bathtub and that it was his idea to dismember the body. But this was a very different version of events than what Colton would recall. He alleged that he did not remember shooting Jennifer, but said he admitted that he must have been the one who had done it. But he told authorities that he knew he had a drug and alcohol problem, and all he remembered from that night was getting drunk and passing out. He said that it wasn't until he woke up at around 5.30 that he saw Jennifer's body in his bathtub and panicked. In Colton's version of events, he called Laura for help, and when she arrived, it was her idea to dismember the body. More than that, he alleged that Laura is who told him what to buy at the hardware store and that she is the one who actually started to dismember Jennifer's body before deciding that they should just flee to Mexico instead. Pretty much, he blamed her for everything except the murder. He said, I, you know, probably murdered her, but then said that everything that happened after that was all Laura's idea. That's super convenient, right? That he would say, oh, I have a drug and alcohol problem. So yeah, I probably did this. You found her, you know, she was at my, in my apartment. I guess I did it, but I would never have done these things. This person that I called did all these things. I was just as surprised as you. Super convenient. Yeah, for sure. Well, and that was kind of what Laura's like opinion of it was too. She was like, it's funny that you said you don't remember anything right. from that night except the things that like incriminate me and you don't remember anything about what you, right. you know, did that night. So yeah, the whole thing was very, very shady. So the prosecutors actually had a really strong case against Colton, as you just said. It was proven, you know, it could be proven easily that he was the last person in Jennifer's company that evening. And of course, as you just said, she was found inside of his apartment. So Colton went on trial for the murder in 2007. He really didn't have a defense to speak of, besides that he just simply did not remember the events of that evening, and as I said, he admitted that he probably killed her. During his trial, he continued to point the finger at Laura for the dismemberment and everything else that happened. But Laura did not take the stand in Colton's trial on the advice of her own attorney. He was eventually found guilty by a jury and was sentenced to 55 years in prison. In September 2005, just a month after the murder, Laura was actually indicted on a felony count of hindering apprehension or prosecution. 
and she was sentenced to five years, but she was not happy with that, and she fought this this sentence that they had laid down on her. She spent just under two years in jail before she was actually released in February of 2009 after a court ruled that her sentencing hearing was unfair, and because what happened during this sentencing hearing was that a taxi driver testified and said that he had ridden in – he had given her a ride in his cab that night and that she had discussed this murder with him. And this is all what he is claiming. And then as it turned out, he gave all this testimony in front of a jury, but then he was not even able to pick Laura out of a lineup. And so it became this whole technicality, and that is what ended up getting Laura a new sentencing hearing. So the prosecutors were still working hard to try to get her back behind bars. As I said, got this new sentencing hearing, and it ended up not actually being a very good thing for her. Her original sentence was only five years, and then all of the information you know, from the first trial was heard again, and they introduced new testimony from four different witnesses who alleged that Laura had actually told them about her involvement in the dismemberment of Jennifer's body. So all of these new things were brought up in her second sentencing hearing. And the DNA expert for the state also testified that Laura's DNA was found in crucial areas of the crime scene, as well as on other very important pieces of evidence. So four years after Jennifer's murder, Laura was back in court to be resentenced, and the state was asking for the maximum that they could go after for the crimes that she was accused of, which was 10 years, and they actually got it. So Laura was found guilty and was sentenced to 10 years for her role in the crime, and she has served her sentence. I think she got out, I think they said, just a few months before her sentence was supposed to be out. She was released in March of last year, 2018. It is interesting to me that, I don't know, the the whole taxi cab driver kind of, I don't know, that kind of blows my mind. I just can't picture anyone just being just in a car. Just making that up, yeah. But I can't imagine being in a car and being like, by the way, uh, how long is this drive? Five minutes? I murdered somebody last night. Okay, peace right. out. That I would, even as a juror, I'd probably be like, mm, I don't know that I would I would really want to believe that. I guess he could be believable, but that one seems a little weird. But although there's four other people saying that she said she helped dismembering. So who knows? I mean, being a juror is not, <laughs> doesn't seem so easy, but I don't know. It's kind of the, the cab thing does kind of confuse me that, yeah. that that would even be, I don't know. That's just weird to me. Or that they wouldn't have been like before, hey, by the way, do you know which one Laura is? Can you look at this picture before they even put him on trial? Like, well, that was the whole thing. He did. They actually did before the trial, but then somehow he still made it up there and still gave this testimony in front of the jury and just really painted. Laura in this like terrible, terrible light. And, um, but that was kind of how she got the sentencing hearing because he really never should have been able to take the stand in the first got place because he couldn't pick her out of a lineup. So yeah, I think I worded that a little bit unclear, but yeah, that was before he even took the, took the stand and said all this stuff. So I can see how, how a judge would say like that that was not credible. You know, he wasn't a credible witness. Yeah, for sure. So something that I um, found when I was reading various articles on this case is that Jennifer's mom, after this, after all of this happened and this trial went down, she felt just terrible for the jury. So she never has looked at Jennifer's murder photos. Of course, no mom would want to see that, especially in a horrific and gruesome murder like this. But she understood that the jury that sat on this trial they didn't have a choice. They had to look at these awful, you know, images of her daughter. And she was really concerned about how that would affect them long term, you know, throughout their life, having seen something like that and being a part of this terrible and sad trial. And so she actually was seeking a way to fund counseling for jurors who had to see these gruesome crime scene photos. And I know I didn't couldn't find anything more current to find out if she ever was able to find an outlet for that. But I know she was trying for a few years. She had like she was actively trying to figure out how to set up either some kind of foundation or some way to fund counseling for jurors in in terrible cases like this. And I just think that is like the sweetest thing that she could do in her daughter's honor. That's incredible. And then to like, you're grieving. She has all this grief and she's lost her daughter. And to think of how that would affect somebody else, that somebody else had to sit through this thing that she doesn't know them. You know, she doesn't owe them anything, really. It's not her fault that they're on this jury or whatever. But to do something like that is just amazing to me. I love people like that. That's just going beyond yourself whenever you're hurting. 
that's like the true character of somebody. Yeah, absolutely. So while researching this episode, I actually read an excellent book on Jennifer's story that has so many more details of this horrific crime, but also the background on everybody that's involved. This book goes into such depths. I couldn't even, I can't even say enough great things about it. So it's really one of the best true crime books I think I've ever read. So I highly, highly recommend it if you want to dive even deeper into this story. And there is, when I say there's so much more, I mean, there is so much more to this story. So the name of the book is called A Descent into Hell, The True Story of an Altar Boy, a Cheerleader, and a Twisted Texas Murder. And it is written by Catherine Casey. I think I paid like $8 for it on Amazon and it was worth every penny if you are looking for a really, really good true crime story to read. Nice. Okay, Melissa. You want to switch gears here? I think we're going to switch gears here and go right into our last thing before we go. This week, I asked our Facebook group if they had any fresh ideas and fresh suggestions, and we got a lot of repeat questions. I think the reason we kind of stopped doing questions every episode is because we weren't really getting a lot of good ones. Not Well, we were getting a lot of ones that we've already done before or that were very similar to ones we've already done. So these ones, I think, are different, I hope. and It's also um, hard to remember. <laughs> it is hard to remember what we've talked about before and what we haven't. So this week, the first question comes from Anna W., and she wants to know if we take our shoes off when we come inside the house. Do we wear socks or go barefoot in the house? What is your rule about shoes off or on in the house, and do you do it? Oh, do you want me to go first on this? You know my answer yes. here. My house is a shoe-free house. I don't mind if people come in and wear their shoes, but I'm always kind of like, I hope they get the hint and they take their shoes off. (laughs) Um, But I don't like wearing shoes in the house. Sometimes I will wear shoes like in the kitchen if I'm cooking or like in one spot, I have like a special pair of old lady shoes that I wear just to give my back a little support because I'm 100 years old. But (laughs) otherwise, I like to wear socks. But I'm also weird. And if I go to somebody else's house, if I don't know them, like if I how often does this happen? Like one every four, once every four years, but like a Christmas party at somebody's house or something. I always have socks in my purse because I don't want to go to somebody's house. They have a no shoe rule. And then I'm there barefoot in their house. I don't know how clean their floors are. I can't take these kind of risks. So I will bring a purse socks and have those to put them on. But in a hotel, I'm the opposite. I will not take shoes or socks off. You know this about me, Mandy. I will not be barefoot on the tile, on anything. I hate it. It grosses me out. And I hate feet. I love socks, all socks. I'm wearing socks now all the time. They're my best friend. Truly. They really bring (laughs) me comfort more than anything else or anyone else. It's really sad. Mandy, what about you? So I... I try to take my shoes off and I definitely try to get my family to take their shoes off by the front door. Um, And that's mostly just so that we know where they are when it's time to go out the door to school (laughs) in the morning and everyone's not staring, standing around, you know, looking for their shoes. I do take mine off sometimes. Sometimes I don't. And the reason is because I have all tile floors and I also have dogs and animals and I live in the woods and there's a lot of dirt and I sweep my floors and mop them. But I I just feel like when you have all hard floor, it never, if you walk around with no shoes on, it just, it doesn't matter. Like you can feel that there's stuff on the yeah. floor, you know, it doesn't matter how much you sweep or mop. That's why or you wear socks. Well, okay. But then I get grossed out if socks get dirty. I guess I need to wear black socks. As soon as I have the opportunity, I don't care. Hotels, Ugh. friends' houses, you've seen me come to your house and just plop my bare feet right up on your couch, and that's just how I roll. And I'm sorry if you hate it. You should not tell me now in front of all these people. I will not but. say it. <laughs> I appreciate that you respect my house and like that we always take our shoes off because you always come in and take your shoes off. I've never, ever asked you to. You always do it, and I appreciate that because I'm always worried about people dragging crap in from their travels wherever they are. I didn't think I was a germ person, but the older I get, the more I realize, like, I hate germs. I hate the idea. But I'm weird if I don't even want other people's house germs on my feet. Like, I can't even (laughs) deal with that. So it's it's a me thing. It's not a you thing. I like that people can come over and be comfortable at my house. That's a wonderful thing that you you feel comfortable at my house. Um, I don't want to look at your feet, but I can avert my eyes. (laughs) So. But I don't want to look That's at so anyone's funny. feet, so it's not a personal um, attack on you. Except for my kids' yeah. feet. My son's. My daughter's like a seven and a half now. But my son's foot is still kind of small and cute. And so I'm enjoying not hating his feet for as long as possible. 
<laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, if I go into anyone's home and I see, especially if I can see right, shoes right. by the front door, I'm like, okay, well, obviously this family takes off their shoes. So I do because I just think that would be incredibly rude to like just ignore someone. Yeah. Someone's my <laughs> shoe thing, you know. So, I mean, when people come to my house, I don't make anyone take their shoes off. Some people do. You always do. But I don't make people. I don't ask people to. And it just doesn't really bother me that much, I guess. I, I kind of... I don't know. Sometimes I take mine off. If I feel like I need to mop my floors, I'm probably going to wear shoes all around the house. So I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think I would ever ask somebody to take their shoes off unless it was like really muddy outside and they were coming in. But I like – it does bug, bug me this one house I've gone to and this person who will never listen to this. So too bad I'm talking about you. Like literally you walk in, they're like, put the shoes there. I'm like, mm, you need to like – I just don't get like aggressively telling somebody – because what if your feet look like crap? What if you have something going on with a toe? What like you don't want everybody to see your feet? I get that. I I hate feet. My I wear a ten and a half shoe. I don't want people seeing my foot. So I don't get like making somebody do it. I get like looking at the like you do, look and see what <laughs> what the situation is when yeah. you walk in. <laughs> but I would never ask somebody to take it off. If they ask me, I'll always say like, yeah, if you want to take them off, that's great. But I'm not going to force you to, except for one lady. I That same lady, I wanted to be like, take your shoes off. But I, <laughs> I didn't. Okay. All right. One last question. Um, this is a good one. Jenny R. wants to know, when do we think it's appropriate to decorate for Christmas or put up a Christmas tree? All right. I went first on the last one. You go first on this one. Okay. So I am, as Melissa sometimes says, a diva. and <laughs> I say it a lot. You just don't always hear it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I am kind of a diva and my birthday is in the beginning of December and I refuse to put up a tree or decorate for Christmas until after my birthday because I, I as a kid, I never really noticed, like I didn't feel slighted that my birthday was so close to Christmas. But now as an adult, I find it really hard to get anyone to pay attention to me on my birthday, oh which my I think gosh. is just a thing about being an adult. Because <laughs> it's right after Thanksgiving. And so everyone's kind of already traveled and like no one cares. Just a few days after Thanksgiving. So no one cares about it. And then people are busy. And every time I try to make plans, people are like, no, sorry, can't. Because Oh, yeah. It's nothing in thing. December. Yeah. Everything's booked in December. Yeah. So I end up having to like tell people like this is the day I want you to hang out with me and then I make them feel bad by saying like it's for my birthday so I don't let Christmas decorations go up at my house until after that because I just feel like I already have it's already overshadowed by other holidays and people's busy lives so that is my reason for not decorating until after December 1st and I would prefer if people never knew that I even had a birthday or was born (laughs) (laughs) I love birthdays Mm -mm. you know I am such a birthday person I love I love other people's birthdays. I love my birthday. I love making people feel special on their birthday and giving them presents. And I don't know. There's something wrong with me. I like spending money, and I think birthdays are a great opportunity to spend money that, you know. I think that's a nice thing to celebrate people's birthdays. Yeah, people wouldn't let you do it otherwise. (laughs) I I enjoy celebrating other people's birthdays. I don't really enjoy – not that I don't enjoy I don't want it to be ignored. So there's like a weird line for me. Like I don't want it to be like a day and no one say happy birthday to me. But I also don't like the alternative of it being like a big thing. So I'm like, I need a couple people to say happy birthday, but that's it. That's it. And then I'm good. But back to Christmas, we are a like put the Christmas tree up the weekend of Thanksgiving. That's what we kind of do. That's always been our tradition. So I like that. I think do it whenever you want to. I mean, if it makes you happy, it's a pain in the butt to bring out all the tree and all that crap. So if you want to keep it up for two months, do that, whatever. But also we're a bring it down on January 2nd family as well. Like my husband cannot take it. Like honestly, the afternoon of Christmas, he's ready to take it down and I won't let him take it down till (laughs) January 2nd. He's like, it's over. Christmas is done. But no, I'm not a fan of that. So yeah. Thanksgiving to January 2nd. Yeah. We always get a, a real tree. So I that's another reason why mm-hmm. I try to do it. I try not to do it until like the first week into December, then I'll get my tree. But And then I do like to keep it up through the new year. I'm like really just like your husband that way. Like I once once the holiday is over and then especially once you get into a new year, like I just want all the Christmas stuff to be done. I just want to be like into the new year and starting fresh and not having – all the Christmas decorations around my house still. So I get rid of them pretty quickly too. But yeah, I don't put them up until like three weeks before Christmas. We had a real Christmas tree one year and I was like, I will never ever do this again. I love the idea of it, but like, you know how I am with like, 
I don't know. I just don't want anything extra. <laughs> I'm like, don't give me one <laughs> extra thing to do. I'm not cleaning up pine needles. I hate this so much. I'll just put like a pine scented thing up there, whatever. I don't care. Eat some cocoa. Drink some cocoa. See, I don't even know what you do with things. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. Enjoy whatever you do, whatever your tradition is. Great. I like having those kind of traditions. Whatever works for you, do that. Awesome. Well, that is it. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. There you go. I feel like that accidentally became our outro. I don't know how. It did. It's, it's yeah, working. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if you say it enough times, it just becomes a thing, just like the intro became a thing. There you so. go. There you go. <laughs> All right, guys. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.